Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. When I started doing these interviews back in 2014, I told myself that eventually the conversations would be of value, like historical value over time. And that not only was I capturing a conversation with a person in one moment, but also, hopefully, I was capturing something that would be meaningful in the future and help to illuminate a person's life and career. As they say, be careful what you wish for. Because, in fact, that has revealed itself to be the case. On multiple occasions now, I found myself turning to an interview that I did, not only as a way of remembering my own life, but also as a way of memorializing a person that I talked to. I feel grateful that so many people have been generous enough to share their creativity, their process, their vulnerability, their spirit, and a little slice of their story with me. One of the most generous, vulnerable, spirited, creative storytellers that I've known was the writer Peter Straub. He was a best-selling author of novels, short stories, novellas, and essays. He had started out with the dreams of writing poetry and literary fiction. But after he published his first two novels and two books of poetry, he finally had to ask himself that question that so many of us have had to ask ourselves, how do I make a living? And that's when an agent suggested that he try writing a gothic novel. It was advice that reoriented him for much of the rest of his career. He had a natural ability, as it turned out, to write novels that as he said, would be appealing to people who loved both Philip Roth and Stephen King. Peter passed away last week at the age of 79, but I'm able to remember him here through our conversation. The case of Peter is particularly resonant for me because he was a friend. First, he was a friend of my father's. He went to college with my dad in the 60s. They met in a creative writing course their freshman year. And then he and his family became friends with my whole family and me. I remember thinking after I had this conversation for the podcast with Peter back in 2017. How even your friends, even the people who you've spent significant time with, even the people you know personally, even those people have deep wells of experience and feeling that you might never discover if you don't ask the right questions. I learned an enormous amount about Peter Straub in this conversation. I learned about his motivation, his process, his insecurities, his creative mind. There was a kind of a modesty and a childlike enthusiasm that I often felt from Peter. But maybe that's because we tended to talk about one of his favorite subjects that was only loosely connected to his career, and that was jazz. When I talked to him for the podcast about his work in this interview, I understood how seriously he took it and how devoted he was to his craft. He wasn't just having fun. I learned that fun was maybe not even a word that one could use to describe what motivated him initially. And in fact, there was a kind of a dark shadow that hung over him from the time he was a child. When it came to his work, he was often interested in what happened in the shadows. But that was offset by his delight at watching other people, particularly jazz musicians, take the spotlight. He loved to sit in the audience and dig a jazz show. He particularly loved swinging, lyrical, sweet, and romantic players like Paul Desmond playing with Dave Brubeck. Peter told me in our conversation that the first jazz he ever heard, in fact, was a Brubeck album originally called Brubeck Time and then re-released later as Interchanges. What you hear behind me is Paul Desmond playing on the opening track, Audrey, from that record. I have many memories of performing on stage with Peter in the audience, his cheeks rosy, his attention fixed. You got the sense that he was totally in it, completely focused on the thing you were doing. And it was a wonderful feeling to know that there was somebody in the audience who heard you and who knew what you were about and who loved it. 
You know, I think sometimes we forget that music is actually saving people's lives. We do talk about it as a, a healing force or an escape. But for some people, a relationship with music actually saves their lives. It's hard to explain how it does that. But I think music was one of the key elements that sustained Peter Straub throughout his life. In our conversation, we explored all this, the through line of jazz and fiction, improvisation and writing, how the past stays with us into the present, and how watching his Norwegian farmer relatives taught him how to write diligently. I guess I just wanted to tell you all that before I rerun this conversation with Peter Straub from 2017. We lost a great writer and a great friend, but we can still hear him talk today. Third-Story.com is the place to go to check the archive with hundreds of members of the creative class. Visit wbgo.org studios to check out all of their award-winning content. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast. Here's me and Peter Straub back in 2017. Jazz and writing seem to be the two through lines in your life. They're, uh, they're extremely important. Jazz, in a, in a sense, came first in that uh, I first heard a jazz record when I was, I think, 13. It was a record called Brubeck Time, uh, and it was standards uh, with one original, I think, played in the studio. I didn't understand that record. I bought it because a cousin of mine whom I respect, a, a, a girl who's one year older than me and just an astonishing person, told me that I would probably like jazz. And because everything she said was pretty true, I thought, oh, I'm going to give that a try. So I went down a crap little store near, near our house, and I found Brubeck time. I brought her home, and I knew it was really nice, but I didn't get it. I barely knew human beings were making those sounds. Mm-hmm. And when they moved in some other realm, it, it didn't matter if human beings were making it because it was just so great by itself. I, I, I listened to that over and over and over, and you know, once I kind of got it, it was so thrilling. Anyhow, I am never happy just having one of anything. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so it, from that point, I, I, I tried to walk into the rest of jazz, as it was at the time. And I had a very firm cutoff line uh, of about 1952 that meant anything made before that was boring old-fashioned stuff. And anything played after that was exploratory, interesting, moving, and grown-up. Now, of course, once we got into about 1973 or something like that, what was up to date was Coltrane liberated from any previous definition of music and doing interstellar space or, or those crazy Japan concerts. They were just they'd go on and on and on on this, or live in Seattle, you ever hear? Coltrane's Live in Seattle, it's an ax murder. Hmm. He and Pharaoh Sanders are doing nothing but playing overtones and screeching hmm. <laughs> with the rhythm section. So did you draw another line, more or less, at 1972? Yeah, I thought, if this is where we're going, i got to go back. Yeah. So then I, I got into Ben Webster, I, I got into Coleman Hawkins, I really got into Lester Young, um, and Benny Goodman, and Artie Shaw, and back further, Eddie Condon, and... Bud Freeman, uh, a whole bunch of trumpet players, Joe Jones, Sid Catlett. What I really loved was like Bill Evans and uh, Paul Desmond and Jim Hall and Miles and Clifford Brown. But uh, once I understood that these guys were not only really not museum pieces, but were just a little bit older than the guys I revered and were still, were still working, 
here and there. Then I just went backwards until I got to Bix. Mm-hmm. And that was where I wanted to stop because I didn't want to really get into Paul Whiteman. Mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in New Orleans-style stuff. You know? I understand that you were reading a voracious reader as a young boy. Yeah. And, and it strikes me that the first time you hear or start to understand jazz... Mm-hmm. and understand that these people are speaking a kind of wordless language. Exactly. It must have been a revelation to you. Yeah, it was. It, uh, that's what moved me so much, uh, especially in my er- earliest days of paying attention to jazz, was that narrative-like quality that very good musicians had. It made everything sound easy, but it can't be that easy because uh, m- most musicians don't do it. Mm-hmm. But the idea of linking phrases together inevitably suggests forward motion and it helplessly implies a kind of narrative. Yes. You know, so then I was on home ground, you know, <laughs> and I saw it as another version of the kind of thing I was really interested in, except at a better, pure, higher level that could not be translated in the words. Part of what was very interesting about jazz. To me, it was that everybody had this sound all their own. And I thought that just came. The first time you took a, took a horn in your mouth and learned to play a couple of scales, I thought you probably sound the way you sounded. And then you worked on your tone, but it was, you know, you, you could easily tell Ben Webster from Coleman Hawkins from Illinois Jaquette. Yeah. But I don't, I think those guys worked very hard on their sounds. And, and younger, since we're talking about tenors, uh, since when I hear most younger tenor players, I don't hear that desire for an individual thumbprint uh, sound, style. You know, there's so much Coltrane, so long after Coltrane's death, mm-hmm. that it kind of passed into, I mean, it's probably a good thing, uh, this uh, rigorous musicianship and uh, instrumental command, all that stuff is really good. But... Uh, I'd rather listen to the old Bill Perkins than to um, Javon Jackson. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the good ones. He's one of the best ones. So I've been working my very way very slowly toward yeah. the question of words and fiction. Yes. And we haven't got there, but there's no reason why we should get there already. Well, well, I would love to get there at any <laughs> point. Please work your way there. When I was very small, I, I was fascinated with print and lettering. Uh, I bugged my parents about the names of streets when there's a street sign in the corner. I said, what, what does that mean? What is that, Daddy? You know, Or c- cereal boxes or billboards. They had words on them, and the words looked like um, locks to me. That, you know, once opened, you could go somewhere good. And uh, so I, with great frustration, I kept asking my parents to read me things. In the meantime, my father had shown me the drugstore where, where you could get comic books. And every week or so, he'd go down there and I could buy two more comic books and bring them back to the place where we lived. And the, he read them to me, and my mother read them to me. And they did, did that so often that I actually had them memorized. And after that, I set up camp on my front, front stoop, and I invited other kids to come for this interesting thing I was going to do. And then I read aloud from the comic books to them. So you essentially taught yourself to read. So I did. And, and, and then I really wanted stuff to read. And I, I was um, panting to go to school because I knew that's where they did that. Only because I already could do it 
you know, a bit in the summer between kindergarten and first grade. When I got kindergarten, it was a total disappointment because you never even saw a book in kindergarten. You saw big scissors and construction paper. And you said, you're holding out on me. I know there's books here. Where's the book? Yeah. I don't want to cut out an elephant. <laughs> now, so when first grade came along, I was prepped. And they did pass out books uh, for the purpose of teaching us to read from them. The books, alas, were the Dick and Jane books. Have you ever laid your cunning little eyes on a Dick and Jane book? I mean, I, I think I know the plot. <laughs> C, Dick, C. Run, run, run. Run, 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 Jane. Run, 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 dog. It made me angry. I felt um, uh, blocked and um, really pissed off. Insulted, it sounds like. Well, kind of. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't what I wanted and needed. That's really the truth. Yeah. Anyhow, then everything got more complicated because I was bumped up into the second grade, having been vocal about my uh, contempt for our reading matter. And things were better. I didn't know anybody in the class, so it was kind of lonely. But it, it, it was okay. I liked having work that uh, challenged me a little bit more. The whole question of fiction is still lying in the background. And then, of course, uh, maybe not, of course, but... I, I got hit by this car when I was in the second grade. I spent a year out. This is not an of course for me. I, I oh. didn't know that until oh. I started to get ready to talk to you today. Oh, okay. and, and I was really surprised at how much a part of your personal narrative it is. As you know, I recently memorialized our friend Tommy Lapumo. I oh, thought, sure. and, and he also had an accident when he was a young Did boy. He? And he came to music huh. by turning the radio on while he was lying in the hospital. Oh, that makes so much sense. So what happened to you, Peter, after your accident? <laughs> what happened after my accident was a long time in the hospital, which consisted of intermittent but thoroughgoing suffering, during which time I was mainly left alone, of course. Then, then they let me come home but after months. But then I was in a body cast that included all of my pelvis. I didn't have a catheter that ran out of that. I don't know what... What you did. I don't know. But... When I was a little boy, I looked down at, at a leg and plaster, an ordinary leg and the plaster in the middle, and I thought, they took my penis. <laughs> Do you remember the accident? I remember the moment before. What I remember is standing in the middle of the road holding an ice cream cone, having stepped out and walked halfway across without looking. I looked sideways, and I saw an old upright grill. That is the grill of an older car coming right at me. And it was maybe 10 feet away, maybe 20 feet away. And I looked at it and I realized, this is it. I am going to be hit by that thing. And then it moved forward in a series of jump cuts. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't a smooth progress. It, it kind of went frame by frame. Only half the frames were missing. Do you think you had any sense of mortality before that? No, of course not. Kids don't have any sense kids, of death. Kids don't. Kids are in a, and should be in a bubble of innocent narcissism that tells them because they are they, the world is going to be okay. The world's going to turn out all right. All their friends are good people. You know, I love my mommy and my daddy, and I'm pretty good. I'm pretty important. Because mm-hmm. you know? every, every child knows he is first in the universe unless you get really beat up as a kid. Do you think you, you came into contact with mortality at that moment? I came into mortality, yeah. My brush with mortality was astonishingly premature. But I was still at the age when I was supposed to believe that the world was benign. 
or at least indifferent. I, I was going for benign. I thought, <laughs> I thought things were, I mean, we had problems at home, of course, but uh, because my old man was a piece of work. He, he was a salesman, as in death of. Mm-hmm. But he was also a sort of roistering, slap on the back, extremely grandiose and narcissistic uh, guy. What I'm saying, I guess, is that even though home life could be kind of rocky sometimes, we certainly were never physically abused at all. After the accident, I was left uh, alone uh, for much of every day. And I I resented it. I was angry. Uh uh, My mother had to go to work. That was the deal. My mother was a nurse, by the way, a hospital downtown. In Milwaukee. Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. At the time, it struck me as this unbelievable act of betrayal that she would leave me behind and go off to look at a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they tried to explain it to me, but it really didn't make sense. And then I also was unhappy and even angry in some buried way about what had befallen me. I didn't think that was supposed to happen to <laughs> me. This was not the plan I had in mind. In one's mind, one exaggerates, at least I do. And, and so the accident, which did break a whole bunch of bones, and I believe led to a brief near-death experience, so terrifying, that I shoved that way down to the bottom of my unconscious. You know, I had emotions I wasn't allowed to have, really. And you pushed, this is what you said, you, you sort of buried all of that. Uh, yeah, I couldn't bury the daily misery, but I could bury the escape from this world into something finer, higher, way less understandable, in fact, not understandable, some, something, something through which I was being pulled and toward which I was being pulled, all that. I couldn't talk about that because I didn't remember. I made myself not remember that. Mm-hmm. Later on, there's another thing I made myself not remember, which astonishes me. I don't know how I did it, and I'm sorry I did it, but I was not a happy boy. However, here enters literature, the stuff that I'd been aiming toward really my whole life, uh, from uh, well, one to, to, to seven. And, and I, I, I couldn't move around very much, so we didn't have a television. If we did, it was a tiny little dark thing. So I just read. My parents got books in the library, I think. Anyhow, there were a fair number of books. I was in a wheelchair for a good long time, then I used crutches. All that time, my father is saying, don't favor that leg. Just walk, don't favor that leg. Uh, you don't want to have a limp. So I was saying, gee, a limp would be really cool. <laughs> I'd love to have a limp. <laughs> Look like World War I officers. <laughs> Anyhow, so eventually I got rid of the crutches and my father still kept saying, complaining about my gait till finally, I believe, I practiced this for a long time, and then I could walk in a normal way, even though one of my legs is about that short. I went shorter than the other. Is it? Yeah. The one that was operated on is longer than the normal one. But it, you were just kind of bossed into yeah. losing the limp. Yeah. I'm glad now. Yeah. <laughs> and what about being taken out of school for that? Well, that's true. I, I, I was taken out of school, but that meant, meant that when I came back, I went back to the class I'd been in. Because you had been advanced. Yeah. Advanced. And so I knew everybody. I liked them a lot as a class. I had tons of friends there. At that time, do you have any memory of those impulses that would later reveal themselves in you, the macabre, the, the shadows of the world? Sure. I mean, I've become all too familiar with that kind of thing. My parents 
would not have approved, and to the extent that I let any of that kind of thing out uh, and put it on view, they, they objected. We live in America, put it behind you, just get on. You have to live the rest of your life after all, you're only seven <laughs> That too was uh, frustrating. But it was t- sort of tamped down, those impulses in you, seeing yeah, the dark side yeah. of life. Well, I, I, I wasn't very aware of any of that. But believe me, just in daily life, I had plenty of dark stuff. I had way more than I needed. And uh, it was scary. Any time a door was closed or something terrible behind it, uh, shadows always held hideous things. But even worse was that things like this and this could talk. And, oh, an ottoman, and, a box, a piece of furniture or something. Yeah, or, or, or just might be ready to spring out, you know. That there was uh, something hiding. There, there, there was something hidden, and everything was alive in a very, very sinister sense. Telephones especially, the way they were then, the way they rang, they jiggled slightly, very slightly. Um, everything looked alive, and it all looked dangerous. I knew that I could show none of that. Uh, I, I probably complained about it once to my mother, and she probably said, don't ever let your father hear you talk like that. <laughs> what my mother told me that is eternal was that I was about 12. She said she knew that I didn't like most of the people I met, but if I pretended to like them, pretty soon I would. I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> and did that? And I tried it, and of course it worked. Yes. <laughs> you know, it really did. I mean, it did me it did me a powerful amount of good to get get down in a sandbox with everybody else. Yes, exactly. So were you were you social? Were you a social teenager? Uh, were you a social kid? I did, yeah, I I was I had two friends on on that first street we lived where I was uh I was pre-accident that I was uh, I was literally abused in a movie theater about two blocks from that house uh when I was about 5 because I was I was in the habit of discovering quarters by myself and then going out of the house, walking up the block, walking down a big, big crowd of street and paying my way into a movie theater. They had matinees and things ran all day long, continuous loop. So I, I go in there, I, I couldn't buy anything, but I just sat there and watched movies, I'm, double features. Mm-hmm. And you were five? Yeah. I mean, what I like were film noir. I like darkness, I like rain on the street, I like street lamps shining, headlights shining on wet streets, guys in raincoats, staircases, blondes who talked out of the side of their mouths, <laughs> guns. I liked all that stuff. One other reason for liking it besides the excitement of the theater is that when I went outside, it was though for a minute or two, I brought all that with me. So all the shadows of the cars on the street were really, really crisp and, and black and big lamppost somebody you know there could be something behind that lamppost or something in the windows it turned that fear that i had before and would have again into a kind of a game and a pleasure because it was an extension of the movie i just seen but something happened to you while you were there on one of my journeys there alone i cannot remember this except i reconstructed it so what you invent in the story is a kind of an imagination of what might have happened yes i'm sure of that First of all, the story quickly became of intense importance to me. And it's about a boy going to the movie theater and meeting up with a seedy, presentable creep who eventually is saying, hey, I got something for you. you know? And then I know this happened to me. And then I, I had to go back a couple of times because if I didn't, of course, he killed me. 
uh, or kill my parents or whatever those guys say. Or tell, in the story, even the fear of telling your parents, which I, I think is a very believable yeah. to a child, particularly the fear of being told on when you don't know yeah. what's worse, you yeah. know? Is it worse to be killed or to be told on? You know, <laughs> you don't really know when you're five. Yeah, you don't. I, I couldn't have talked about that. And that is the stuff that I made myself forget in, that, in the little bedroom we had in that, in, in that house. It just, I knew I was damaging myself, uh, that I would never be the same after I forgot this thing. And then I went ahead and made myself forget. And then it came back in that story, the juniper tree, which I wrote because it struck me like a bolt of lightning. Hmm. And when I, it, I, I really, I treated that story with uh, immense respect. And uh, after I'd written it, I put it away. It was written in a bound journal. I put it away on a shelf, and I let, it sat there for about two years. And then a friend of mine asked for a story for an anthology and told, told me who else was going to be in. So I rewrote that story and sent it to him, and then it was in a, this book called Prime Evil. And then it's been in a few books of mine. That really shook me up and disturbed my world, for sure. And as, as we have been saying, it could not be spoken about. And when... I started to talk about this with the shrink I went to for 30 years. It became clear that something of that, some, something of that sort had really happened. And it made me feel, at that moment in the shrink's office, I remember feeling so filthy and polluted. I thought, anybody who does that to another human being should be slammed in jail right away. Yes. <laughs> because uh, I, there, there's another huge injurious thing that, that I was incapable of actually getting over. And here's another one. Yes. You know? <laughs> and, Come, jump on my back, please. And yet you have been so fascinated by the minds of the people who do these things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious about them. I'm, I used to be a lot more cu curious about them than I am now because I happen to see, uh, read books, you know, read more books about them and see, see a couple of, uh, documentaries on it too. And they're pretty shallow, empty dopey characters. There isn't a Hannibal Lecter in the bunch. Mm -hmm. When you get under the hood with Jeffrey Dahmer, it's mm -hmm. not as interesting as you would hope. And Jeffrey Dahmer is one of the best. And from your hometown. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I, I invented Dahmer before he appeared on stage. He was, he was fully operational in a novel called The Throat. Anyhow, I, I, I got launched in the reading in school libraries were full of material. I mean, for a long time, all I read were Hardy Boys. And for a long time, all I, all I read were animal stories. But what so, you're describing is as you embark on your reading career, mm -hmm. on that formation, and I know you say often to people who want to know how to learn how to write, that mm -hmm. they should read as read much as lot. possible. Yeah. But as you embark on your reading life, yeah. you're starting out with, and this is becoming clear to me right now, with two dark secrets yeah. at minimum. Yeah that are lying in wait. Lying in wait. Lying Just in saying, wait. someday this guy is going to turn 40. <laughs> and in the meantime, we can fuck him up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's very revealing in a way, you know, yeah. because there's no way to practice to become who we're going to become, right? I mean, no. it's just kind of no. there. I did, I did very much want, want to be a writer. Once I started reading more seriously, um, because that early stuff I read when I was still lying in bed and unable to move, uh, all, those books weren't written by human beings, and the illustrations were clearly by some divinity. 
and and you know they were too good. People couldn't have made that stuff. And I never thought about it in my later grade school years. The things I read, uh, I did know. I did know the names of the people who wrote Frog, which was a book about a horse. Uh, the books about collies, which were by Albert Pace and Ter Hune. He's paying and attention to the authors. You're realizing there's a person behind <laughs> yeah. these words. Uh, another thing I did that, that indicated that was very much alive was my parents had a little bookcase. With, and the same books were in it every year, I mean, all, all, all the time. So, and some of those books look good. So I pulled down The Stargazer by a Hungarian named Zolt Hirzani, and I signed it. Best wishes, Zolt Hirzani, and I put it back. <laughs> and I did that to half a dozen books. <laughs> you signed them on yeah. behalf of the author. Yeah, I did. you were getting ready to <laughs> sign books. It was like it was like when little girls push push a baby carriage yes. down a lane. You know? Yes, that's exactly yeah, I was right. Practicing, uh, I was I was kind of held back from really throwing myself into it for a long time. I I did I did I, in grade school I wrote two killer diller stories. They were both about as grim as you can get. One is about a spy who, to avoid torture and arrest, jumps, off, jumps through a window very high up in some building. And the story is what goes through his mind on the way down. Mm. What, he, what chiefly goes through his mind is he picked, he sh, being a spy was a terrible choice. Yes. <laughs> I should never have been a spy. You say there was like a realization that there are people writing these things. I've read an interview with you where mm. you said you think fiction is among the great creations of mankind. It's oh, of absolutely. Don't you think? I mean, it's an astonishing thing. And it's never been out of popularity. You know, it, it, there, there's something for everybody in what fiction has to offer. But just in itself, it's an amazing way to deal with one's own experience and human experience in general. And you can, if you represent with accuracy, with real great, or let us sometimes say breathtaking accuracy, then you've done something that uh, really shines on that page. And if you chisel away all the dross that one naturally spills out along with the good stuff, hmm. then, then you, you, you've, you've got something that's both unique to you and it can be shared by everybody. And it keeps moving. The, the way people read shifts, especially now, must be true. I, and I know I can't keep up with it. Uh, I, I can read on iPads and uh, on my phone, but I don't much want to. I want to come back to this, but I don't want to lose the thread of your life, Peter. No. And oh, we're, yeah. we're about to land in basically where I sort of find you. I mean, not in my own lifetime, but what I sort of first knew oh. about you was that you were in Madison in the 1960s. Right. So out of all of this kind of preface, you land in... In Madison, yes. A boy who appeared to be normal. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and was, you know, good at school, um, had a ton of books where I brought my record player and a whole lo lo load of records. And I wanted to be a, what was it I wanted to be? A psychiatrist. Uh -huh. And only had to be a doctor before you became a psychiatrist. So I signed up for pre-med courses, and it was a very bad fit. Why do you think you wanted to be a psychiatrist? I love the whole idea. I mean, I, I, I like the idea of understanding human motives. I like the idea of listening to people talk. Yeah. I, uh, so you invented all of that in the end. Yeah, yeah I did. Uh, and I thought that I... Shrinks take vacation. There are hours between patients, and I thought I could just 
click up a typewriter from this side of my desk and write a little bit and fill in my space. This is what uh, the poet William Carlos Williams did. Uh, in between patients, he got a typewriter slid in front of him and he wrote a couple of poems. So I thought that was doable until I burned my hand like six times on a Bunsen burner in chemistry class and realized I had no uh, affinity for it at all. Uh, so, I re so I went back to my default and I became an English major. Um, I, 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 took one short, I took one creative writing class in my life and it was that year when I was a freshman. It, it, uh, it was pretty crowded for a creative writing class, maybe 25 people, and a terrific professor whose primary passion in life was Saul Bellow. Mm -hmm. It was back in those days, you know, it was 1963 or something. Beyond that, I just kind of threw myself into the work, the work I had to do, and some of which I really, really liked a lot, and into the social life of this one goofball fraternity very close to us, which was got later so extreme they were bounced off campus. The house across the street was a real beehive, because your father was there, Sid Sidrun was there, Boz Skaggs was there, and a very nice guy that I discovered your father doesn't remember, a sort of lean, finger-popping African-American guy who had great taste. He was born to be in that building. He loved Horace Silver. Huh. <laughs> huh. So, so I had long talks with Collis, and uh, he said, man, where'd you get all this taste? Because <laughs> you came in digging jazz. You had found that in oh, Milwaukee. Man. Oh, man. By this time, I had a lot of jazz work. But you know, that period, it's a very interesting period in the development of the 60s in Madison also. 63, yeah. you know, you guys were just old enough that you saw it shift under your feet, right? Yeah, oh yeah. 63 was still pretty traditional, right? It was tra traditional. When did I graduate? 65. Even in my sophomore year, but certainly by my ju junior year, there were tables out in public places where you signed some petition. There were, there were. Uh, protests, but mainly there were guys uh, har haranguing from atop boxes. Or one became very aware that uh, that there was a war that was a bad war uh, in, in which we had no real role. Campus was uh, divided, except 99% was on the side of the liberals. Mm -hmm. Anti-war. I, I, I had to live with it, is the way I felt, because what I wanted to do was go in there and read more stuff and... Uh, write more papers and do kind of what I'm supposed to do. I, I have met guys since who started off at nice colleges like middle or these are black men and, and, and did well or appreciated on campus, but, but then discovered that there were all these knockout girls walking around holding signs mm -hmm. and, and, and protesting like crazy, and they were just dying to go to bed with handsome black dudes. <laughs> so that's what, that's what this guy Bernard did and what my other friend Hap did, whose father was a professor at Fisk. And they met girls by going to protests, mm -hmm. you know. So they were out on protests all the time. Meeting girls was a motivation for so, so much <laughs> development over and over and over again. I hear it over and over yeah. again. No, they were also political, I'm very sure. But I think the f matter of the draft yes. increased every young man's uh, political awareness. Yes. Uh, which, you know, it makes a little suspect. It was great. I was very glad I wasn't there in 1968. Mm -hmm. But I was there when Ken Kennedy was assassinated. Mm -hmm. I was there when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the country just seemed appalling. The country had lost its mind. Talk about darkness. 
very, very shady guys popped up out of nowhere. Well, you revisited this idea also yeah. oh, a handful yeah. of years ago. Oh, yeah, Dark Matter. Yes. You've done a lot of reading, Leo. Did you actually read all this stuff? No, I didn't, but okay. I, I, I did as much as I could. So j just to finish that thought oh, yeah. about I'm, these characters who would come through town, these guru guys. Yeah. They, they were uh, purely exploitative. Your father met one who borrowed clothes. I think they all borrow clothes. Yeah. And, and, and they never pay for anything. They kind of charm. And, and sometimes because they're good looking, they have to be good looking, or at least really interesting, to pull this off. Then they invite themselves on your couch and you say, oh, of course, I'm so glad. It's, you can spend the next couple of days. And then they spend a couple of weeks. Um, mooching. Mooching and, and dispensing gassy pseudo-wisdom. The one on a dark matter was very much based on a guy I saw operate once in, in Madison. A friend of mine on the street said, you should go to, uh, room, to the upper room at 512 Henry, or, you know, this is where I lived. But anyhow, a, a rooming house very near to mine, and he said, uh, a guy named Bill Johnson is going to be there, and he's amazing. So I thought, okay, I'll try I go up and here's this guy with blonde, rough blonde hair, sort of Steve Bannon as a boy, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> safari jacket, and and uh, a couple of drinks in front of him, wall of girls, and some uh, you know weedy looking, highly interested guys, and he just talked and talked and talked about being in Tibet, about seeing blood run down the gutter in a bar, about the the Book of the Dead. First time I ever heard of that, about bardos. I mean, he had a whole long, complicated rap, and uh, that was his job. He'd go to these towns, and he'd, girls would follow him on. He'd say, okay, you two, come on. Please come. I'm, let's continue the party. Mm -hmm. The and, conversation. Yeah, let's continue our conversation. Uh, and I, I never forgot that guy. And he, he was interested in tarot reading, he was interested in the occult, um, so I kind of had a beat on him, um, even though I, I only saw him that one time. I'm glad I only saw him that one time. Did you, did you get a sense at that time in your life that you were collecting observations and collecting characters who might be able to make future appearances in your work? I was still a psychiatrist, are you kidding? Um, however, even at that time, I had some sort of reputation as a writer which I cannot explain. I'd been, I'd been overpraised in high school. I was made a great deal of by English teachers. And I said, nobody else made a big deal of me, but my English teachers did. And uh, that was very like confirming and I continued to do well. I dazzled all the other lads and girls in my freshman English course because I could just spout about E.M. Forster, stuff they never heard. And you could spout because you had been reading. Yeah for so long. Yeah, I've been reading them. I've been reading about those people, too. Anyhow, when I was a sophomore, I was with my friend Bob Schuster in the building that I was going to move into in a year. And there was a graduate student present in the room. And, and he said, I wish I were like you. I wish I were a writer. You write great. And I, I'm just, I, okay. <laughs> if he says it, I'm going to take it. But uh, he didn't have much evidence. I did, however, act and think as though that was perfectly okay, as though it were my due for this guy to tell me I'm a good writer. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what that connected to in the world of uh, actual accomplishment because it didn't. But what it did, what it did acknowledge was uh, desire in me that, you know, the, the, the part of me that really did want to write. And, and I think really actually defined myself as a person who wrote first. Before uh, you wrote, you defined yourself as a person yeah, who wrote. Yeah, as, as, as a, a potential writer, a yes. writer who could be potentiated, you know, who, who would then be able to work. I said to that guy that I'd always been afraid to start because I knew that once I started, I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. Which is true. Well, I certainly didn't want to do anything else. I'll probably tell you that. But, but by the time you graduated, you came to Columbia for a year? Yeah. That was all English lit. Yeah. English lit. Ann Lauterbach, whom right. I met there, who's like a genius. And was a genius then, but a genius of self-absorption. Nobody ever spoke about themselves and their problems as lyrically and movingly as that young woman did. It was fabulous. I fell in love with her. And besides that, she was astonishingly beautiful. She was so beautiful. I, once we, we, this was in Dublin later. We were walking down a big street in, in Dublin, a, a, a carriageway. And a truck driver came up, a guy in a huge truck, came barreling up the straightaway thing. And he, and he turned his head and he looked and he saw Anne, and he put his brakes on because he wanted to look at her a little more. <laughs> you saw it happen. I saw it happen. Do you think that, I mean, as much of a product of the 60s and particularly Madison at that time, yeah. there was something always a little more traditional, a little more formal about your approach. You were always like pretty sharp dressed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Classic and, and, and attracted to, you mentioned being in Dublin, like you were attracted to the UK, you were attracted to England, you were attracted to I a know, kind it of... It all seems very old-fashioned now, but uh, that's, that's, that's where I thought all the action was. I, I cherished the notion that I could one day write fiction, and I was almost positive that one day I could. And that lasted until we got to Dublin, where I felt that um, if I didn't start writing a novel then, I, I might lose it. So instead of writing the boring thesis I was supposed to be doing, I went to the same place, the National Library, a big, gloomy, beautiful place with uh, ancient guys who searched down the files for you, you know, the, the books, the papers. You had to sign in this massive ledger mm-hmm. by hand. Wow. I went there every day, so pretty soon I was making up names. You know? And instead of writing your instead, dissertation? It's, 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 instead of trying to read stuff about Trollope or Thackeray, I tried to write 500 words a day of, of a novel following the advice of Graham Greene, who pointed out that if you wrote 500 words a day at the end of the year, you'd have a novel. So I did that without much planning. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I, it, it did feel like being seated on the right saddle, finally. You know, like walking into a, a house and thinking, oh, yes, this is the house I've been looking for. <laughs> and it, it did that, in fact, become your first novel? Yeah, it was called Marriages. It wasn't very good. It was nicely written. It got some good reviews and some bad ones. It didn't sell for shit. But I did get it published, which is quite a feat, actually. Did you have any idea how one wrote a novel before you started writing the novel? Uh, Well, I read a lot of novels. In Dublin, I had my version of a, a creative writing course with a friend of mine named Thomas Tessier. We, we didn't know each other before we met in Dublin. We met uh, at a poetry reading or at a pub where there were poetry readings. Later, we did poetry readings together because, as I've forgotten until a second, all this time from age like 20 to into now, I, I was deeply into poetry. 
I, I read fiction, but I read a ton of poetry. You know, I had a lot of people I liked, other people I disliked. It's a, it was a, a lively world, especially in Dublin, where there are poets all over the place, mm-hmm. and poetry readings all over the place, all the time. And so Tessie and I did a lot of readings. I published there, and he published there. I heard you once refer to that period as your own little Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was. Tessie and I swapped a lot of manuscripts, and we uh, recommended books to each other. There wasn't anything faintly studious about this at all. But you were kind of teaching one another how to do it. Yeah, and ourselves. Mainly, uh-huh. it is helpful to have a sounding board. And someone who likes basically the same stuff you do, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. And gets you. Yeah, that's right. I kind of had a notion that writing books would be... Uh, you know, a real, really splendid thing to, to be doing. I knew it would call upon a lot of whatever I happen to have inside me, and I and uh, it, it just seemed extremely attractive. And also, I didn't have any other destiny that I could visualize except really crappy ones. Hmm. You know, like what? Oh, like lying in the gutter, like, <laughs> like being in jail, like being a total fraud. Uh, marrying the really wrong woman and uh, being trapped, you know, of becoming a criminal. I don't know. Those I, were the roads not taken. It was I'd be a very writer. lousy criminal. I hate to confess, but I would be. I, although I was still writing poetry, and in fact, I had two books published. Of poetry, when, early. Of poetry, when, when we lived there. One in 1972, one in 1973. I didn't want to try to make a, a kind of life on the money a poet would be likely to earn. And I, as a, by that point, I, I didn't really want to do anything else unless I could teach the kind of stuff I was reading in that library. Did you have ambition? Did you have ambition to be a successful writer? I'm not sure. I wrote, the first novel was an imitation of John Updike, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, and somebody else. Um, I hadn't yet tried to get Saul Bellow into my books. The next time around, I did. Once I started writing actual fiction. I wrote that novel, then I wrote like 20 stories one summer. So I was, I was ripe. After that, it was unthinkable to go back to writing a thesis. So I just like, I, I bet the farm, I doubled down. I sent this book off to an English uh, editor. I didn't even have an agent. I don't know how I heard about it. I just sent it to the publisher. I didn't know her. I, I, I didn't know the woman who bought the book. I didn't know anybody there except a guy, a guy named Andre Deutsch, who ran the company and, and whose um, publishing company was the same as his name. So at Deutsch, there was this woman who read my book in a slush pile and liked it and arranged for it to be, to be published. She liked what I did, and I loved her, of course. And, and, and it seemed to me that that was all I needed to face the, um, the obstacle that had been present all along and which I have not spoken of until this very second, which is that my parents would have thought the ambition to write fiction either insane or perverse. It would have angered my father because it would seem like throwing away money and deliberately electing to have a a low-rent, wasted, impoverished life, as he would have seen it, uh, an impoverished life riddled with delusion. If, if If I'd told them, my parents and Susie's parents, if I told them that I chucked my studies and I was writing a novel, some of those people would have flown to Dublin and handcuffed me to the table. Flown uh, you back with them. So, so, I, so I didn't tell them until I had a novel that was going to be published. And then at last I could say, look at this. 
this is what I want to do. I can make enough money year by year if I write, write one of, this, of these for, for us to survive and do reasonably well, especially in Dublin where nobody had any money at all. And then after that, I began to write on a daily basis. And so were, that's the moment that you began writing as yeah, a job. Yeah. It started in Dublin in the National Library, but that really was a kind of experiment. I gave myself three tries. I didn't tell Susie that. If I wrote three manuscripts and none of them were publishable, I'd stop trying to do that, and uh, I'd go look for a job. So but I, you wrote one, and it was published. I wrote one, and it was published, so I kind of squeaked in well before the deadline. For the better part of your career, yeah. you have woken up, gone to work. Pretty much. And set these targets for yourself. Yeah. You know, I always wondered, like, where does that come from? Where did that ethic come from? And also, just where, do, where does one decide this is the target this is what i do well that part's easy but the only reason i could do that and and work with great application every day for decades was that my mother's parents were farmers and we would go up to this farm every summer and i'd see how those guys worked it was all day long so when i'm sitting at a desk with a bound journal in front of me or a computer screen but way back at the beginning, I mean, I was thinking of those people who weren't very verbal and spoke Norwegian when they were in Wisconsin, that something of their attitude had flowed into me. I hate being late. I hate being really disorderly. I don't, I, I, I don't like that. There are, there are certain traits that I have directly from these Norwegian farmers. And I have to say that, that inheritance did me a power of good. Because I'm also, my mother never stopped wishing to inform me, I was also lazy. And so if I stopped, then I could open up a book and flop down, read a book for a couple hours. I also had ways to do that. Sure. So you read 50 pages an hour, that means a 200-page book you read in an afternoon. Yeah. I can't do that anymore. I, don't, I barely want to. Yeah. Uh, except I'd love to read in the immediate way that, that I did uh, when I was in my 20s you know, really just total immersion. All of that was great preparation. It's like muscle memory almost. You, you learn how how to pace things. Yeah. Where, where big events are supposed to occur. And you also figure out that there are all these details that swim around in the book, uh, that light here and light there, names for colors, references to baseball players, whatever, description of a house. These things go in and out and they tie the book all together and at some point the surprise in the book or the mm -hmm. revelation emerges from all these things that were floating around and you get a great feeling when you read that yes now i've i had that great feeling so often that i began to be suspect of it you know i've worked for a long time on the model of the traditional narrative i wasn't working on the model of horror stories though at the beginning that, that was that was a label i was very ha happy to have I knew how people felt about it, and I didn't care. About horror. Yeah. You describe it in, in your biography as being offered an opportunity or the suggestion to write a gothic novel. Yeah, that's what my agent said. I, I didn't really know what that was. It turned out that uh, that is what I write, in a way. Uh -huh. Gothic novels. Or novels of sensation. But they take so long, and uh, one spends so much care on them, and, and there's so much invention, so much feeling. That it doesn't see that it seems like an object at the end that can be read by uh, somebody who loves Philip Roth and somebody who loves Stephen King. Yes, uh, I, that was where I wanted to pitch my tent. Only 
nobody wanted that tent. I mean, they loved my work for a long time. People ate up my work like crazy. It's the very work that came out of these long, long sessions, sometimes before breakfast, mm -hmm. all morning, soap opera in the afternoon, nap, then back to work, then dinner, then back to work. That, so that was the routine? Yeah. Wake up and work? Wake up and work, breakfast, conversation with the wife and cutie pies, and back to work. I'm, there's a newspaper and there's some television here, but it's, uh, it was just after breakfast, there's work until about two o'clock. Then you have lunch and watch your soap opera. I did one life live. And then, and then you just refreshed. You go back to work until you drop. Mm -hmm. uh, certain unwise substances are May very useful in such a, such a purpose. When the agent suggested that you write a gothic novel mm -hmm. after having written some work that was well-received but hadn't really connected. I said, what can I do to earn some money? Yes. I don't want a job. You know, I, I want to make a living writing. What do you, and she, she was the magazine girl, I said, in the, in the agency that I finally found after I found a publisher for marriages. Mm -hmm. When you first approached writing a gothic novel or a horror yeah. novel, did you have a sense of what that would mean? And did it feel comfortable to you when you started doing it? It felt astonishingly comfortable for me. Uh, for reasons that you can extrapolate. I walked into that water because I wanted to be able to earn a living. There weren't very many actual horror novels that were any good that, were, uh, that had been published. There was The Exorcist mm -hmm. by Thomas Blatty, or his name was. And there was The Other by um, Tom Tryon, Tom, Thomas Tryon. And Shirley Jackson was just about dead, I think. But she, she, she had written, uh, it isn't Hell House, Hill House, The Haunting of Hill House. No, it's, a, it's a fabulous book. And a great movie by Robert Wise called The, the Haunting. I didn't know of the substrata of uh, busy but not brilliant young and middle-aged and old horror writers all writing in... Uh, uh, amateur magazines and little mm -hmm. journals they printed by themselves and anthologies they printed. I'd, I'd never heard of any of those people. Mm -hmm. So I thought this avenue was wide open. And I'm, I'm either going to write a crime novel to try to make some money and save my life, or I'm going to write one of these horror novels. And I talked about it with various people. And it seemed to me a horror novel was a really better thing to write because Henry James had written The Turn of the Screw. And I thought, that's all the justification I need. Um, and I liked some of the work that Tom Tessier had asked me to read. It wasn't my thing, but it was. But I liked it. it that is, it was. There were all those stories were by people like Richard Matheson and Robert Block, and they were like episodes of the Twilight Zone. They all had a little twist at the end, uh, and everything was organized very beautifully, and with astonishing efficiency to move to that end while keeping you from seeing that it's coming. You know, it's nice. It's a nice model, but it's, yes. it's not for me. So I chose to, I started a, a detective novel, I think a, a little later, and it was, so it was comic because the identity of the villain was clear, unlike page three. And so I, it seemed to me I wasn't doing the job in the right way. <laughs> so, I, so I gave it up. What I felt when I wrote the first sentence of uh, the novel called Julia is that my first emotion was surprise because even though I thought there was some danger writing down and dumbing up the way I wrote, which I thought 
would be a fatal move because I thought once you damaged whatever the intricate little machinery is, it would never work right in the old way ever again. So I didn't want to put Coca-Cola in my gas line. Mm-hmm. But you, so you didn't, though? No, I didn't. I didn't. When people heard, and, and now when people hear, hear the word horror, they, uh, they clam up and they, they're not interested. They, walk, they turn their backs and they walk away. It happened to me the first time I was talking... Uh, after the first book, I was in a barbecue in the back of a house in North London. And a nice English guy in a pinstriped shirt came up to me and said, and inquired about my state and condition, what I did, and who I was. And I was a friend of the people in the building. And, and I, I'm a writer. What kind of writer? Novelist. Oh, what kind of novels? Horror novels. I never saw the guy again. I barely saw him then. He just, whoosh. <laughs> Okay, hey, I'm in the gutter. I began to feel as though there was a great advantage in working in a field that people weren't paying attention to. Because I thought, not that I really did think I was going to make a lot of mistakes, but I thought I could make all my mistakes early and have nobody notice it. Anyhow, those books turned out to be pretty good. Julia, and if you could see me now, they sold the paperbacks to paperback companies. And the paperbacks did way better than anybody had imagined. They would because that whole stream of stuff was just about to come in. Uh, the movie The Exorcist, I don't think, had been released at that point. I don't think. I remember seeing it in downtown London and uh, being astonished by it. But anyhow, my ambitions changed after a while. I was very happy to be called a horror writer. Uh, after the success of the paperbacks? Yeah, well, even before, I, because I didn't know there was a stigma. I, I learned there was a stigma eventually, and uh, I, I sort of chafed under it. But I, but I always thought, in the most egotistical manner possible, that if I just kept doing good work, people were going to notice. Some people are going to notice eventually. They're going to notice that books by author X are rather different from books by author A. You know, it just um, I was, you know, I was ho- hoping for. Uh, uh, in smart readers who would who would step over what they saw as a barrier and discover my work because I I thought I thought there's some, something there to like anyhow I was very very comfortable with uh, the content and subject matter because all that stuff was way too much in my head anyhow well uh, yeah it was that, rampant were you aware of it of how rampant it was not really uh, it would it would make sense for for me to try to uh, tell you about the stages of writing I went through yes. and the accommodations I made. I was very happy being called a horror writer. And, and, and by, when I was back in America, I, I went to a couple of conventions and I discovered there was this whole world and I had like colleagues almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, You had peers. I had peers, except, of course, none of those people made any money at all. Mm. And after my second Supernatural novel, If You Could See Me Now, had, had sold to Coward McCann, my publisher, and to Pocket Books for the sum of like $30,000, of which half was mine. So I got like 10000 for the book and 20000 for the paperback. And, that, and that's the money I made because royalty statements are generally a joke. Publishers will steal whatever they can. Like the record business. Yeah, exactly. So I, I went uh, to lunch with my agent and I said, now, okay, twice in a row, I've, I've gotten like five to $10,000 advances for hardbacks, tw- uh, $40,000 
uh, $45,000, $50,000 paperback deals that I have split with you. And what I want to know is, how do I get from the $30,000 paperback advance to the $300,000 paperback advance? And unfortunately, he said, I don't know. Uh, so he, he was a great guy, but uh, I sort of lost faith in him at, 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 that, at that moment. But then, I, having written those two books, and having faced the usual insecurity that new writers face, that is, is it all a fluke? Is, uh, is, is, is this business of creation illusory a anyhow? You know, uh, and that's only something that new writers face? You, at a certain point, you outgrow that? You, you, you outgrow that version of it. And I mean, for, for, I, I, I performed well. My books performed well after a little while, so that that worry vanished. I knew it wasn't a fluke. I, I knew it was something ingrained and that uh, practically could not be erased, but uh, could be damaged. But what did you then do in order to jump yeah. and connect? Well, what I did, it was like, um, I hate to use this word, but it was um, like a purely organic process. While doing those two books, I had learned that you can cover a great, a lot of emotional ground and, and get a lot of resonance out of uh, stories in which the identities are, are mixed or, and confused, in which uh, things rise up out of you know, rooms or, or forests, or, and there's, uh, there, there are threats, there are betrayals, there's letters, lost letters, you know. Wait, these these are specific kinds of ideas, images that, that yeah. you felt resonated. That yeah. people and 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 my books are full of those things. I I they they emerged at the moment they were supposed to emerge on the page. So I was pretty confident. And but I I I was dissatisfied with the amount of money I was making because by then we'd moved to London because of the agent uh, I had and because of the publisher who bought my book there. So you're living in London and your overhead is higher. Yeah, that's right. It's not as expensive as it is now. And we, we could live on the amount of money I made, but it was uh, pretty hand-to-mouth. I loved Bohemian poverty for, for a while. Yes. Because it means you're liberated. You don't have to go off and do what all those other guys do. And you get to hang out and have coffee with your friends and work your own hours. You're your own boss and your own competition, really. Yes, but I, you're also your I own had, competition once you have success because yeah, you have to beat that success or yeah, meet it again. That's right, pretty much. So I, I, I thought up an idea that was more muscular. Also, in the meantime, I had met Stephen King and we'd gotten on and I'd read Salem's Lot, which, uh, which I just loved, which knocked me out. There, there, there was not another novel like that in sight. There's no indication that it's a vampire novel until the vampire shows up. <laughs> and he's just an old guy standing at the dump. And our hero, Ben Mears, doesn't know he, who he is, but he can't even see his face because I think the guy's turned away toward the dump. And just something in the way the figure is described, you say, holy shit, he's a vampire. Yeah. This is a vampire novel. I mean, I, I thought that was so brave because vampires then were cornball yeah they were really nobody would have seen them as romantic figures what i wanted to do and this this changed my life for sure was honor and uh, build on the shoulders of in some way to exploit great great american writers who had swum in this particular pond you know 
I invented the most most of the characters, and I thought about the town, and I had I, I had matters initial matters kind of worked out, so so it looked like it might work. And it was going to involve these four guys who told stories to each other, mm-hmm. and the stories they were going to tell were classic American supernatural stories or fantasy stories that were based on actual stories. So Sears James told a story about being hired as a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in upstate New York. And that story was based on the turn of the screw. It was a long, unfortunately, it was a lot longer than I had intended it to be. And the next one, told by a man named Ricky Hawthorne, was a version of the Hawthorne story, My Kinsman Major Molyneux. And by that point, I was in the middle of the beginning, and I'd written like 150 pages. I realized um, I, I couldn't include this, the second two stories. So I just, I, I proceeded on from there. But the doing that book was a very happy experience. I believe I learned that I had learned a lot. Uh, and while you were writing it, did you have a sense, a feeling, this is, this is a little different, something is different here? I knew it was much bigger, and I knew it was better. In any case, it was stronger than uh, an- anything I'd done, because I'd, I'd done very little before. Uh, I'd done two novels. Well, I'd, I'd done four. One never published. The marriage was, was not very good. Then these two uh, that, that were published. There was a party that J- Jonathan Cape, the publisher of Ghost Story, had for Christmas. They had it every year. Uh, I went once uh, when Ghost Story, before Ghost Story was published, but they, they all liked me, so they invited me. And I met Ian McEwen there, who was a really cool guy, I thought. And at, at that Christmas party, an executive of uh, Jonathan Cape came up to me and said, you know, we always think that it's going to happen with the fifth book. And I said, what? And he said, you know, a breakthrough. Your breakthrough is this book for sure, and that's only your fourth. So, but we all always think it's going to be fifth. I invite you to consider the patience that publishers used to have. This is exactly where the mind goes, right? I mean, what, <laughs> do you think that publishers could possibly be thinking in the same terms today? Not at all. They want to, as one says, monetize yes. the, the books as soon as possible. Yes. And if you make enough uh, money, you're welcome back. And if you're not, you're going to have to eat, you know what, for, for a while. Yes. Um, or not, not get published. Hence, there's a very, very flourishing small press scene. Does a young, developing Peter Straub in the 21st century find a way to connect with his readers the way you did in, at the end of the 20th century? I, it's possible, maybe. Um, look at uh, the young writer Emma Straub. She certainly connected with a lot of readers. Her trajectory is in some ways similar, but in many ways very different from mm-hmm. yours. Mm-hmm. She, first of all, had the advantage of knowing what it means to be a writer. Yeah. And she also had a father who wasn't going to flip out or freak out when, when he learned that's what she wanted to do. In fact, I, I you know, of course, supported her intensely. But she also is the product of something else that we, I, I want to talk to you about a little bit, which is an MFA program. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, yeah, let's. Because it strikes me that you are a product of the old school, yes. and this in some ways connects with the question of jazz as well, in yeah, that you probably. found a way to find a voice and find a style and develop technique over time yeah. and pretty much invented out of, in the case of many musicians, having listened to what came before, in your case, having read what came before. Yeah. I've heard the story of you and Emma collaborating on a short story in which at one point she says, well, Peter, 
just doesn't know how to write a short story. She said, she said at least I know how to write a damn short story <laughs> to her mother. But because I kept doing what I was doing, I kept trying to shove in all sorts of cool other stuff. And I gave a whole bunch of names to different characters that aren't the main characters meet. And Emma just ruthlessly whipped all that stuff out every single time. And I thought, okay, I evidently wanted a 100-page story. Right. And Emma wanted a 20-page story. So no, I, we, and I mean, I've heard you say, it's like, <laughs> one day maybe we'll sit down and finish what we is, is waiting I'm, to be finished. I'm not sure I could do it now, but uh, it'd, it'd be nice. To, it's a nice story, and there's enough unresolved and mysterious in it to... to give us all, 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 all the room we need. You look at an example like Emma and say, okay, there is a way for a young writer to connect today. Yeah, but it's like a miracle. But the business is quite different. It is. It's, it's grimmer and more frightened. Uh, they were all panicking about uh, e-books. They, they wanted very much to get in the e-book business. And then when they did, and people started going there and buying e-books, they noticed that they were making a hell of a lot less money like half. And the authors also noticed that they were making about half the money previously than previous. And because of that, there were firings all over the book industry. People would go to work and be the only person in the office on their, in their line, you know, walk past the art department where there used to be four or five people who did good work. No more, you know. It's the same. It's the same story in the in the music business. But and but similarly, there is now a way to study jazz that there yeah, wasn't. I know there is. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about everyone you described. You start with Paul Desmond, that sweet sound, that elegance, yeah. that refined thing. And but it was way more than that. Way more than that. He was a uh, when 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 the wind was up and he felt like blowing, he could really blow. Yeah. And he was also uh, astonishingly expressive. You know, he, he could do a lot with that horn. And he was a brilliant imp improviser of melodies. Sometimes I listen to him now and I hear one long, 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 perfectly developed melody come out. Sometimes there's a little counterpoint with himself and then it moves on. It just, he very rarely breaks down and, and just does scale stuff, you know. Do you relate as a writer to those? Is there any part of you as a writer of narrative that aspires to write like a great solo? I wish, yeah, of course. I, when I was in high school, I tried to do that a couple of times. But I tried to write a story in which every note in a certain Desmond solo would be, would be a word in mine, and, and the story would move the way the solo moved. But I could never do it. But even in the way that you wrote, I mean, my understanding was for most of your career, you wrote longhand. You yeah. might have a certain outline, which I think of as, in a way as like the changes to a song. Yeah. And within that, you're, you're kind of riffing. Yeah, and that's the point, really. Uh, so you have something to fall back on. But I, a lot of times I've, I've worked without a, a safety net, as it were. And sometimes that's the best stuff. But I discovered in the second great turning in my career. The, the first was a ghost story in which suddenly I actually did make money. So much so we had to leave England mm. and we moved to Westport, Connecticut. So what was the next turning point? With, with ghost story, my financial life was made much more comfortable for far longer than I would ever have anticipated. And I was, I was doing really well with all the books I wrote after that. So I was a hot property. I took a year off after writing a book called Floating Dragon, and the first book was Steve King, The Talisman. That was like three years, just no breaks. And so I, 
announced to my wife I was going to take a year off. And uh, I did take that year off. I did some good things, some bad things, some smart things, some stupid things. And I spent a lot of time in summer sitting on my front lawn, reading a book and drinking beer. It didn't bother me, man. And then it, was, it came, became time to start again. And I knew it was time to start because I was really turned on by something I had read in a book called The Freudian Fallacy. I can't remember who wrote it. That guy who was an MD and a neurologist told me what happens in hypnotism in one's brain, the sort of waves made, the sort of chemistry that happens is very similar or identical to what happens when people have electric fits. So I thought, okay, let me put those two, let me cross those wires. So of course it's silly. You cannot, no matter how good a hypnotist you are, you can't convince somebody they should swallow their tongue. But anyhow, that's what I did. That particular story, which... Blue Rose. When I read that, I thought, in order to think of this, you have to be in touch with a part of life (laughs) that many of us are just not in touch with. I hear you now saying, okay, this was quite deliberate. Sometimes you you write without a a net, although in this Mm -hmm. particular case, you knew you were going to walk into a situation in which epilepsy and hypnotism are... are And the guy was going to kill his, his little brother. That was a story I wrote after taking at least a year off, and it was very, very hard to write. Why? Because I, I lost my chops. I mean, I don't think that could happen now. I don't think it did happen. But uh, it, I took too much time off, and I kind of forgot how I had done things. So I loved that story very, very intensely because it brought me back into my own workshop, you know, into to my own uh, powers. I was very, very pleased with it because also that gave me entry to Coco. Mm-hmm. And I wanted Coco to be different from anything else I had written. I wanted it to be more serious. I had gone way overboard deliberately with Floating Dragon, which is a crazy technicolor, you know, surround sound horror movie. It's got a lot of good stuff in it besides that, I assure you. But my whole point was to blast my way out of the horror world by throwing everything I could think of in the the same book. Hmm. It went well. Everybody loved it. I mean, a lot of people. The only people who didn't love it were horror fans. Mm -hmm. And I never understood that. The people for whom I actually wrote it didn't like it at all. Well, proving that you you should never do anything to satisfy your audience because Mm -hmm. they'll betray you at every turn. Yeah, that's right. You wrote that you were prone to nightmares after your accident Mm. and they were finally settled by writing horror? Pretty much, they were. For a long time, I was going to say decades, and it probably is decades. And when I kind of moved off that particular base and toward another part of the field, the nightmares came back. Only by that time, I was seeing a shrink, Mm -hmm. and uh, a nightmare to a shrink is like a steak to a dog. (laughs) 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 It's juicy. And, and that one would help me see why I had written this crazy float, floating dragon, why I was so at home with fear. She saw a lot in me. She saw into me in a way that maybe my mother had, but I don't think anybody else ever did, and that I didn't want to know about. I didn't want that history to be me. I didn't want to be uh, objectified. But that's what's so astounding is that as a writer, you are able to see into... Mm. the past and the psyches of all of your own creations. Mm -hmm. I hope. 
without having to see into yourself necessarily. Yeah. Well, all uh, in those in in those first uh, three books. Yeah, and the talisman too, probably, because the talisman was not so, supposed to be inward at all. It's just a mighty nice romp. Your life has been so marked by your work, by waking up and writing and and working. Yeah, that's and right. In recent years, it has been harder for you to write. You... It's been harder. That's right. I was slowing down a bit anyhow. My pace through most of my life was a book every 18 months. That was comfortable. I was writing books that were of ordinary novel length and writing pretty much without impediment or problem. It wasn't difficult for me to keep doing it that way. That was true during Ghost Story. I wrote like 10 pages a day. Shadowland was the book after that, which was even more imaginative, I think, and I, I liked that book a lot. That was all kind of working off a horror model, though the, the model got more and more uh, porous and expansive as, as I went along. I was a guest of honor at a world fantasy convention in the uh, mid-80s, or, mid, or earlier mid-80s, and I was supposed to get ap- after dinner, after banquet speech, and I said, horror is a house that horror has already moved out of. Hmm. And some of those people didn't like that at all because they were happy having their little patch of land, haunted dogs, you know, haunted rabbits, imitation Lovecraft, imitation Stephen King. They didn't want to think about it the way I did. But I did want to expand things, and it seemed to me that in Shadowland, certainly, I had expanded it beyond recognition. But if anybody asked, uh, they, they would probably say it's a horror novel because of the kind of atmosphere it has and because, after all, a boy is crucified in a, inside a room, and another boy is turned into a, a glass bird. The arch villain, master magician, is killed. There's a girl who turns out to be a robotic version of the Little Mermaid, the one who's, who, who develops legs and feet yes. and, and can't take a step on ground without So are all of her. these ideas, do these surprise you as you're writing them? Do they emerge out of you? On Some, Sometimes. They speak through you. They, yeah, but mainly it's like transmission. Something's coming from somewhere. And as long as you keep your egotism at bay and uh, avoid intoxicants, you know, it's yes. a great deal. Uh, yes. y- it can get through kind of undamaged. It will be damaged because it's going through a human vessel. Inspiration is real but earned. Yeah. You said it. at one point. It uh, comes, but you have to be working for it to arrive. You have to be in the right place. You have to be ready. I really did learn that. I had very uh, beautiful, uh, exciting moments of inspiration, but mainly the kind of inspiration I was talking about was just the feeling of being able to sit down and pick up a manuscript, a a narrative that you set down yesterday and make things up in a a logical, articulate, uh, developing manner. If If you're at that stage and if you're in the right shape, it all... It happens fast. I mean, you, you don't have to revise much, and wonderful information and ideas kind of flow through. I mean, I've known you my whole life as hmm. a very easygoing, happy, uh, ready to groove and talk about some jazz yeah. guy. Yeah. And I realize that in all those times that throughout my life that I've interacted with you, or for the majority of them, mm-hmm. just behind the scrim is hmm. a totally interior a monologue that's taking place that's mm. being paused mm-hmm. while we have our conversation and have our <laughs> meal and enjoy is that our... what do you think? 
Well, this is what I, I wonder. I think many people think that. When you put the pen down, mm-hmm. does that noise go away? Pretty much, if it's about uh, fiction. But, of course, something else comes in and replaces it right away. I do think of the work I'm not doing when I get out of bed, when I take a shower, and everything I think of in those moments is really good. <laughs> you know, it's, it emerges fresh from the other world. Yes. <laughs> or my subconscious has had a little while of rest and it coughed up a goodie. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you've missed plenty of great things in the shower and in the real well, world. Well, sometimes I, I remember them long enough to write them down, but very often I think, that's so good, I'll never forget that. Of course. That, that idea is perfect for the book. And as soon as I get my clothes out, I'm going to write it down. But uh, Coco was a second shift in my work, if that's interesting, because I wanted to take it seriously. I wanted to use all the raw, despairing, frantic, terrified, evil, or uh, violent impulse that had been cooking away at me and use it in human terms to not make monsters, not have dead people come out of graves, not have a flood of red spiders come out of a policeman's ass, which I did once. I'd had enough. Horror was a house that horror had moved out of, and I, I was ready to move out too mm-hmm. in the direction that I, I wanted to go. So I, I cooked up this big thriller-ish idea because uh, an idea happened to me as I walked across my front lawn in Westport once, which is four members of an old platoon go back to Asia to search for a fifth member who might have gone off the rails and is killing people. I go, okay. Sounds a little movie of the week, but mm-hmm. let's try. It's the only idea I had. And, and when I got into that, I knew I was operating at a, at a very, very good depth. And the stuff that came to me was worthy. You know, it felt like real people. Um, I did learn something very, very valuable during the writing of Coco, because I'd taken the year off and only written Blue Rose, I wasn't fully tuned up. And I, I wrote the first paragraph of Coco, or the first page, and I looked at it and I saw it was terrible. The writing was awful. So my heart folded in half and my stomach froze. And uh, I thought, holy, is that what I'm doing now? This guy's garbage. So then I worked out what, what I had to do to make to improve that page so it would look like my work again. Yes. And, and after that point, I revised everything immensely. I, I, all my pages looked like wiring diagrams that I was done because I understood how to put things in order so the reader wouldn't have to stop and say, wait, no, did that happen before that? Mm-hmm. Or I learned you put the cause before the effect. And you think taking that year off and then seeing your work with fresh eyes allowed you to recognize that the process yeah. of revision was an important one? Yeah. I think the work I did before that, i.e. I primarily Ghostbusters and Shadowland, I've written pretty well. But if I, if I were to be given a pencil and told to revise them, I, there's a lot I could do, I think. It was a desperate and rather unhappy discovery. But as time went by, I liked it. I loved the idea of improving what I had done and making it much, much better. And I also learned that that process is more or less eternal. Mm-hmm. That unless, until you give it up, you're still going through it and making little changes. It's not finished until you have to deliver until it. Until they or... take it away. Yes. <laughs> and then they stole your baby. Yes. You know, it's a terrible right. moment. <laughs> so I did those Blue Rose books that <clears throat> weren't, it, it wasn't planned that way. Uh, it didn't occur to me that I could do it until the 
and one the throat because uh, I I wanted to use that character Tim Underhill again. I I don't really see how the work I did then uh, Coco Mystery in the Throat and and the couple of books that followed it can be thought of as purely genre. I mean they 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 were written as fiction. Everything I wrote was written as fiction, but these especially and and they were supposed to be and they did take the impulses toward the supernatural and just put them in people's minds. Let's talk about jazz. The dedication of your selected stories clearly makes a point of naming Mm. some of the most (laughs) influential relationships in your life, and many of them are musicians. Yeah, that's right. I uh, loved what musicians do. I still do, and I love the musicians themselves. Now I can see their shortcomings perhaps a little more. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all in divine, you know, divine beings in in human form. I like the idea of um, expression being the first thing in your life. Uh, guys who carry their horns around, guys who really only seem most alive when they're working. I never understood the difference or the way the performance angle is sorted out from the art angle. You know? mm-hmm. Because people in the audience can hear uh, six musicians, six, a little jazz band on stage. Everybody's solos, the drummer solos. And when the concert's over, the people are all saying, Oh, I'm glad, so glad we came tonight. Yeah. They were inspired. At backstage, they're all bitching. Yeah. And most of them think they played like shit. They do. <laughs> and they did, actually. If they feel that way, you know, it, it turns into a nightclub act. Yeah. And, and they do what they're expected to do. And it's just like being Trummy Young with, with Louis Armstrong. Yes. There's not, you don't have much room. Or that guy used to play with Louis Jordan. And at, the <laughs> sa- and at the same time, you know, cats could be playing the same essentially the same changes their whole life. They can. And find a way to stay present and new and fresh with it. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, I love those people. I love, I love the people who speak in connected phrases. I like, I like intricate chord changes. Um, I like extended melodies. You know. In some ways, you ended up happily, for most of your middle age, your adult life, living very close to a scene that sort of developed, the uptown scene, the scene up at Smoke. That was nice, yeah. I wish I'd known about it earlier. But that that became my favorite club, and I liked the musicians who played there a lot. When I had a car and I used to drive, uh, on BGO, there were two tenor players I used to hear that I could never identify, but I knew they were exactly the kind of tenor players I most liked. Uh, like Lester, Zoot, Scott Hamlin, they were Gene Hamlins mm-hmm. and Eric Alexander. Mm-hmm. Huh. They're, they're not much alike. Not at all. But boy, I mean, those, those cats can yeah. play. You know, Gene Hamlins didn't, ha- didn't have to do 16th notes. <laughs> no, but he or, could lay it down. Or 16 choruses, man. He, no. would, he would do it and he said it in a few short choruses. Yeah. And, but he was a guy who you hear him immediately. Yeah. And that's Gene Ammons. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard enough of him. I, I thought of him as that guy that you had to listen to to listen to Sonny Stitt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do feel it. Jazz informed my life and it helped save my life. My own work saved my life without any doubt. Uh, because if I had turned into a shoplifter who had to sleep in the gutter, I wouldn't see much point to staying alive, I don't think. I like the knowingness of 
of jazz musicians. I, I, I like the inwardness of the world they were in, the way they all talked about each other all the time, and sometimes other things. But, but a lot of it was jazz-centric. It was all jazz-centric. After I became pretty tight with Scott and Warren, then I began to see a lot more. And they, and they spoke very, very frankly. In fact, they all did. That's an interesting thing. That part of what was kind of compelling was the world, the insular world, the sort of navel-gazing world of, of the jazz musicians. I like that. And that you, if you're hip and you can hang and you can talk, you can hear it and you know what they've played and mm -hmm. you know where they're coming from, that you can be a member of that club. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I didn't have much resistance at first because I was actually famous. Uh -huh. And I did have a lot of money. Yeah. And, and while that's not a turn on, really, it does, in some mysterious way, give you access. Interesting. Uh, if you're introduced by the right person. Yes. And then the way I talked, I met Scott and Warren the same time at a, in, in front of a gig at the Pizza Express. Uh -huh. Oh, London. Right before that, yeah. It was 1978. And Scott and Warren and I, I mean, I got on with both Scott and Warren, and I, so they were equal friends right, right from the beginning, which was useful because then they ceased to be uh -huh. friendly with themselves. And who could blame them? They were just put together on the same stage over and over and over. And uh, Scott, um, I think, inwardly rebelled at having to share everything uh, for, for, for so long. But Warren, I think, was a beautiful, beautiful player, and, I, and he's... Uh, he still is a beautiful player. He was, he was so brave. He, I, he, it was so melodic and so rich and so bold, too. Warren sometimes knocked the chandeliers off the ceilings. Peter Straub, thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Leo D. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.